When I first came to Toronto, I used to smirk whenever people complained about the cold. See, I moved here from Kenora, Ontario, a place of frozen lakes and bone-chilling temperatures, vast canyons of Canadian shield, and pine trees slouching with the weight of the last snowfall. Smack dab against the Manitoba border, it's the kind of place someone might put on a Christmas card. The kind of place beer commercials insist is the real, true north strong and free. Torontonians don't know about winter, I'd say. I know winter. Tough talk. Except it's nonsense. The reality was, we didn't spend much time skating on frozen ponds or walking through blizzards or doing much of anything. We hopped into the car and sped from one warm place to the next as fast as we could. The outdoors might as well have been outer space. On the steps of City Hall, however, in the glow of the iconic Toronto sign, people are skating. Because of their density and design, cities are perhaps the best places in Canada to embrace and enjoy winter. It takes a little planning and the right attitude, but the true north can really exist in the heart of a major urban centre. No disrespect to Kenora, Ontario. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we're not out of the cold yet. We speak to Susan Holdsworth, coordinator of Edmonton's Winter City Strategy, about the design and culture shift taking place there to make Edmonton a truly winter-friendly city. And we speak to our publisher, Matt Blackett, about some spacing updates and what you can find in the latest issue of the magazine. But first... Janice Lukes is a Winnipeg City Councillor and cycling advocate. She's going to tell us about the significant investment that the city plans to make in bike infrastructure and how to make the most of winter in one of Canada's coldest cities. We reach Councillor Lukes at her home in Winnipeg. Stand by. Janice speaking. Uh, hi, Counselor. It's uh, Glenn Bowerman from the Spacing Radio Podcast. Glenn, yes. Hold on. Let me get to a different room here. Okay. Okay, just going to close the door. Okay. Uh, so the first thing I wanted to ask you about was um, that it seems like Winnipeg is... is uh, about to make a, a serious investment in uh, pedestrian and cycling infrastructure in the, in the coming years. Correct. We've been, uh, basically, I'd say over the last 12, 12 to 13 years, uh, really seen an increase in the infrastructure investments we've been doing for active transportation. Mm-hmm. So um, it's great. It's good. I think this year we've got an estimated $10 million that we've got going into AT infrastructure. So very exciting. Right, and a long-term plan, a uh, very long-term plan uh, with uh, considerably more money uh, being talked about. Yes, absolutely. We've got uh, actually a strategic plan that we put together, um, projects us out for the next 20 years, and I believe um, an estimation of around anywhere between 275 and $300 million. So we can, we can only hope. <laughs> right. And, and so how would you characterize the cycling culture in, in Winnipeg right now? I'd say over the last, oh, 
12 years or so, when I first got involved, um, there wasn't really any formal organization. There were a few people that were interested. Um, you know, there were a couple of projects going on. One project was a very large uh, expansion of our flood protection system, and we went down to Grand Forks and saw how they incorporated a uh, pathway into their into their floodway protection system along the Red River, and we wanted to do the same here. So we were trying to find um, a group or an organization from a cycling perspective that we could partner with and have as advisors, and really there wasn't a formal group at that time. So um, we, found, we found a few people that were interested, and, and um, over time uh, a great organization formed by Winnipeg, and um, I'd say they're a pretty passionate group right now. Very, very involved. They've got a great membership base, and um, they provide a lot of technical advice and guidance to the city of Winnipeg. I worked with them prior to being elected, and uh, continue working with them now that I am elected. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, bike lanes in in any city, uh, it seems like any major ur- urban center. Uh, it's going to have its detractors, and uh, in Toronto, uh, what we frequently hear is, uh, you know, people pointing to the bike lanes in, in say, mid-February and saying, why why are we taking valuable road space when when uh, almost no one is using these bike lanes, which is debatable. Uh, but uh, I wanted to talk to you, who uh, lives in a, a truly wintry city, um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, Toronto, we get a fair amount of snowfall, but it, it melts almost immediately. Winnipeg, I used to live around there, and uh, I, I can attest it's a fairly cold place with uh, pretty much year-round yeah. snow. So so what do you say to those people who say, well, you, you can't ride today, there's too much snow, so what's the point of bike lanes? Well, you know, I'd say come to Winnipeg, or what, what we did uh, about five years ago, I, I raised some money uh, through some organizations, and we sent one of our active, uh, very involved cyclists off to Ulu, Finland, which has basically the same climate, same temperature, same amount of snow, mm-hmm. same amount of sunshine as Winnipeg does. And they're further advanced, obviously, than we are here in Winnipeg. But, um, you know, everyone bikes there. Everyone bikes there. They prioritize their bike routes after a snowfall over their streets. Um, you've got all ages out cycling, young elderly and and everyone in between so so here in winnipeg um we're not quite there yet like ulu finland but we're very much on our way mm-hmm. a lot a lot of the ability to clean the bike routes is, is sort of two things are involved one is proper design of the infrastructure mm-hmm. that you're you know that of the bike lane and the second most important thing is having the proper equipment to do the work. Um, and I guess the third thing, too, is having the budget, or I guess what I'm calling it is political will to right. give the budget to cleaning the bike lanes. So we've got, um, oh, we've got about three pieces of decent bike lane infrastructure in place right now. And this is our third winter. And there's a lot of lessons that we've learned over the first and second year. Uh, This third winter, we had the most snowfall we've ever had in one month that we've had that we usually get all year. Mm -hmm. So that sort of, sometimes when Mother Nature dumps the snow, uh, sometimes you just, it takes a long time to to dig out. But 
Now we're in the middle of a thaw in Winnipeg here, one of uh, an all-time record thaw. So <laughs> we're really seeing the effects of climate change, and and that's something we had a professor do some studying on. And um, cities are going to have to become more resilient and understand how they do their snow and ice removal in ways they never have before because of the freezing and thawing. So we um, we've got some challenges, no doubt, cleaning cleaning the snow off the bike lanes, but. Um, we're trying. We're working through it. We are getting some new pieces of equipment in um, for next season. We have a, a review of how we're cleaning our network right now, and we're reprioritizing it. So we've, we're expecting a report out in about 30 days. I made a motion no last year about this time. The department's studying it. They've been consulting with different groups. Um, I had the opportunity to go to the bike walk conference in Vancouver this year and met up with a gentleman from Sweden, and they were prioritizing how they clean their active transportation network, and it was rather interesting speaking to him and, um, you know, getting some pointers. So we will come forward with this plan on how we're reprioritizing it, and then it goes to council to see if council wants to fund it because uh, it, it will require a higher level of maintenance, a higher level of cleaning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that will be, that will be another interesting day at city hall. Right. <laughs> and another interesting feature of downtown Winnipeg is the skywalk, which uh, mm-hmm. I've seen pros and pros and cons as a kid. I used to love running through them and, and certainly they mm-hmm. are, uh, they're accessible for a city that can get choked with a, with a heavy downfall of snow. Um, but there's also some debate about is it best practice to be bringing people off the street or, or is there a way to open up the pedestrian realm to uh, pedestrians all year round? Um, do you have thoughts about the Skywalk? Well, I do, actually. I'm, I'm very involved with the uh, accessibility um, group in our city here. And the, the one thing that I really realize is, um, yes, of course, you know, taking people off the streets, changing the dynamics on the street, that... You know, that is sort of a, a downside, let's say, to these skywalks. But on a positive side, so if you've got mobility challenges in a winter city like Winnipeg, it can be extremely challenging to move. And mm-hmm. the the accessibility folks that I work with um, I just love the skywalk. Uh, and, and it's interesting because last winter we held a session and we had many people come from the accessibility groups in Winnipeg. And... And you know, you just you, you just listen to the details, and and the thing with accessibility, whether you're in a walker or or whatever mobility challenges you have, a couple a couple small um, snowballs of snow that have fallen off sort of an area that's plowed can present a real challenge. So you know, for those who have a good mobility. You know, sometimes the, the sidewalk scientists are, you know, are, you know, are, are fine. But for people with mobility challenges, it's really difficult. So, so these skywalks um, are embraced by people with mobility issues. And you know, I think that we have to really look at a um, equity in, in how we how we allocate our resources. And and, I, and I'm okay with these skywalks. So it sounds to me that when it comes to these uh, pedestrian and, and cycling sort of improvements, uh, it, it comes down what you're saying is, is a mixture of a, a bit of a culture shift uh, in mentality and, and just a political will, as you say, making them priorities. Well, yes, because it costs money, you know, and, 
when I look back when I got really involved about, oh, 15, 16 years ago, I mean, it was a huge uh, learning curve that we had to, I say we because it was a group of advocates, we'd go down to City Hall and basically we'd educate the elected officials on why this was important and and why it was needed. And, and then, you know, we've seen sort of this big groundswell throughout, well, throughout the world, quite literally, throughout the world, people are realizing, you know, it's uh, for health perspectives, for environment, uh, for, for so many reasons. So it's becoming more accepted. Now there's, there's hundreds of people in uh, Winnipeg that are embracing the cycling and active transportation culture. But um, we still have some challenges uh, with <laughs> folks that aren't because uh, we are such a car-centric society. Um, so when it comes time to getting the political will, you know, uh, you know, I'm the first to say that there's some barriers there. And and ha- now being elected, it's not any easier on this side of the table <laughs> right. uh, moving things forward. You know, we try, I had a motion to put uh, a downtown bike grid in, uh, a movable downtown bike grid like Calgary's been doing and uh, Edmonton is doing. And, um, you know, it got sort of, I call it life support. It got extended for 120 days to study it further. So... But, you know, um, I've been at this for 15, 16 years, and uh, change doesn't happen easily, and it doesn't happen quickly. But, boy, when I look back at what, you know, things have changed, it's extremely rewarding because so much has. Well, uh, Counselor, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, great. No problem. Thank you very much. Thanks for, for covering this very important topic. Susan Holdsworth is the coordinator for Edmonton's Winter City Strategy. In 2012, City Council endorsed this strategy entitled For the Love of Winter, which included ideas and recommendations for improving life, design, economy, and the story of Edmonton during the coldest months. It's Holdsworth's job to shepherd this strategy along, and we reached her in Edmonton. Hello, Sue speaking. Susan, first for our listeners, I wanted to ask you uh, about the Winter Cities guidelines, uh, how it sort of came about. Sure. The the need for Winter City guidelines came out uh, through the w- development of the Winter City Strategy. And that's kind of our vision document called For the Love of Winter, of how Edmonton is going to embrace winter more and be an even greater winter city. And it's a really broad-based and holistic uh, vision document and approach, and um, it covers kind of everything from making it easier to go play outside to designing our city better for our winter context to supporting winter businesses and festivals and changing those underlying stories of what it's like to live in Edmonton in winter. And in the design kind of pillar of the strategy, we identified some uh, actions to work on, and the key foundational action was to develop these winter design guidelines. So that's what we did. Right. And those design guidelines include sort of um, uh, best practices for built form, like, uh, you know, how to, how to decrease wind or uh, how to get a- ample lighting on a street, that, that sort of thing? Right. The two main goals are to make our streets uh, essentially more comfortable and safe and accessible. Well, that's one goal. <laughs> and the other main goal it has more to do with beauty and aesthetics and interest. 
And uh, so, yeah, it's, um, there's some things that deal more with, uh, you know, making warmer microclimates, blocking wind and capturing sunshine. And the other part is, um, you know, color and light and the right infrastructure to support the kind of life we want to have in wintertime. Right, because it's it's sort of been said that um, you know in, in urbis, urbanism, if you if you build a city uh, around the the toughest couple of months of the year, then you're going to get a bad city. But if if you you can kind of change the channel, uh, change the attitude towards it, and embrace winter uh, and, and make the absolute most of it, then you you can actually have something quite beautiful. Right. Totally. We, you know, there are some bad weather days in winter, there's some, you know, extreme cold days, but there's also bad weather days in summer. You shouldn't design your city for those few days. Right. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Just like, I mean, thinking shifting right now from the huge seas of parking we supply, uh, you know, around some retail developments for the 100 year parking event or whatever. But, <laughs> um, you know, thinking is shifting on lots of things. And one of them is, um, as well around winter that we should stop hiding from it and designing it out. Basically we should embrace it and design to help us enjoy it more. Right. Because, you know, I, I'm as guilty of this as anyone in, in Canada or places, you know, Northern urban centers. Uh, it, sometimes the tendency is to sort of hunker down, uh, sort of hole up, but, uh, but there, there's a lot of uh, potential to tap into the winter season. Absolutely. It has the most unrealized potential out of any season, I think. So it's an important part of life in, in cities that have all four seasons, especially places like Edmonton where our winter season's longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then, you know, it just makes sense to like try to increase our quality of life in that season because it has just such a huge impact on your whole quality of life year round, right? Right. And and so this far into the program and these sort of best principles that you've outlined, um, uh, how are things looking? Um, well, I have to say we're, we're really astounded. I think the biggest change is just in terms of the culture shift that's already happened here. People are actually have shifted their attitudes around winter and have started to think about how to design for the winter context. Um, it's really amazing to see the kind of change we've had in in a few short years. So it took us a three over more than three years to develop the guidelines to get them to the point they're at. But even before they were approved, uh, developers and even city developments were incorporating the principles in in their projects and in their developments. It's it's really neat to see. So you're seeing interest uh, from from the private sector as well. Absolutely, in in many cases they're they're the champions for for some of the ideas. Um, we've learned that we have to change our regulations and, and our standards in some of our funding models mm-hmm. to better accommodate some of the, the ideas that are in the guidelines. And that'll come over time. We have, we have a kind of an incremental uh, approach to implementation. So mm-hmm. as opportunities arise, we'll update various standards and regulations and then have those, the robust kind of winter lens that the guidelines provide incorporated into other things over time. And so I imagine you've you've been having uh, sort of uh, feedback from the public uh, throughout the process in in coming up with these guidelines. And since you've been trying to implement them, uh, what are people saying? Oh, there's huge buy-in. Um, I mean, who wants to walk down a windswept street, <laughs> <laughs> you know, freezing? And uh, everybody <laughs> wants to be able to ignore the wind chill and to be able to enjoy 
um, you know, public life in their cities and, and in the streets. Everybody wants doesn't want to feel trapped in their homes and afraid to go out. And, you know, they want they having an invitation um, that you can create through better design and a feeling of warmth and more opportunities than, you know, for people to connect and enjoy. Um, like what's not to like. And, uh, you know, making it safer, more accessible. That's making, you know, it's just, it's just win, win, win all around. And I imagine you, you've had a, um, a lot of conversation around uh, active transportation modes as well. I mean, the, the, the tendency in, in winter times, if you have a car, if you're able to drive, is, is to get inside the nice climate-controlled car. But uh, I imagine you're looking at walking and biking, uh, that sort of infrastructure. Yeah. Absolutely. That is a, a key part of it. And, um, you know, we've, in the past, everybody's heard those things, like nobody cycles in winter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but actually, research shows, you know, from other winter cities that uh, um, cycling in winter, you know, they, they still have, like in other cities, huge uptake on winter cycling. Um, when it drops down isn't so much when it gets cold out. It's when, um, well, except for when it goes below minus 20, they're right. getting more into the extreme cold. It's not the cold that's the deterrent to cycling so much as concerns around safety. And that's totally linked to infrastructure and maintenance. So we ha- so basically in cities that have separated bicycle infrastructure that is cleared of snow in winter, that's where cycling continues year round as long as it stays above minus 20. Right, and you mentioned you, know, nice yeah. <laughs> you mentioned other winter cities. Uh, were were there cities in particular that Edmonton looked to uh, when they were sort of conceiving uh, of these new guidelines? Yeah, we did. We looked we looked uh you know, at leading practices from other places. And, and we know, you know, even though a lot of people say, oh, that's not our culture, that'll never happen here, that culture shifts over time. And uh, we're not as limited by, our, by the weather as we tend to think we are. So that's one of our key messages that we're also just pushing, you know. Our culture will shift too, we, you know, especially if we design properly to support the culture shift. And so uh, moving forward, what do you hope to see with the program? Um, I hope to see just people really understanding what it's all about and and just putting more thought into designing better for our winter context um, and developing some real local expertise on, um, on that, on those design elements. Like we know that it's really important to block winds and to uh, not cast our public spaces, have them be in shadow. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, for the, it's, it's a, something else to really know how to analyze, <laughs> you know, how the, the wind travels down the side of a building or over land. So, you know, developing some, some expertise so we actually can design properly for it instead of pay lip service to some of these elements. Because yeah. I think every city, winter city around the world, knows about these things. None of them are rocket science. It's just uh, how much do you enforce it and really understand it even. Because you can't enforce something you don't truly understand. Well, Susan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, thank you. Now we've got a new issue of the magazine on newsstands, which means it's time to check back in with Matt the Bossman Blackett, who will give us a little preview and tell us about a new spacing project years in the making. 
So Matt, Spacing's got a new issue on the newsstands, uh, and uh, we took a little bit of a different approach uh, this time. Uh, we, we produced it in a partnership. Yeah, we, we, uh, we've teamed up with uh, the fine folks at The Ethnic Isle, uh, a website um, that, that covers uh, city issues from a, from a bit of a different perspective than we, we do. A lot of it comes from a, a more suburban point of view, but also from a, a social equity point of view. Um, and what we decided is like we, we have a great expertise, I think, around transportation issues, be that the TTC or, or traffic or transit or bikes, um, and then we've we've merged that with their their their, their uh, unique perspective on uh, on the city, um, and we've come up with a a, a cover section that's about uh, race and transportation in the city. It's how we move around the city and how race and class plays a, a, a huge part in in how we actually move about the city. Uh, so we're, I'm I'm really excited. We have a couple of our uh, we have I think eight or nine articles in in the issue um we have things that um uh, topics we explore um uh, a woman uh, a muslim woman traveling on the ttc and how that's a different uh how that's different than from a, a say a white male uh riding around the ttc there there's there's inherently different different issues that 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 uh that uh, people come up against um we have things about uh, a woman who rides um a bus to discover the culinary delights of 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 the, of the suburbs um um, there's there's a look at Little Jamaica and how the effects of building the Crosstown uh, uh, line along Eglinton is is having uh, an effect on that on that uh, on that neighborhood. Uh, and then we, uh, uh, we we talked to former Mayor David Miller and and uh, exploring his transit city proposal that that came out in the in the late 2000s and 2007 and 8 um, and how that was whittled down. But that basically was a, a transit project for the suburbs of the city um, and, and how that was meant to transform it and so it's a bit of a look back and 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 kind of the regret that that he has and then I, i'm sure a lot of our readers have of of not seeing um uh that that project come to come to fruition uh so so that our cover section is something we've done in, in a kind of we've taken a different approach to it and i'm i'm really excited to 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 to, to see our readers response uh to this but we also have some other great 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 things in the issue uh, we have this photo essay that i think is is so it couldn't be any more spacing uh, like um, it's it's about trash bins on the uh, it's a history of trash bins in the city um, and it looks at the different uh, manifestations of, of garbage bins on our, on our streets um, I absolutely love that and we also have a, a, an excerpt from um, a new book about Don Mills and and uh, it's a it's a chapter from this book and it's about um, how the Underground Railroad ended up in Don Mills um, it, it seems like an unlikely place but it's a, it's a fascinating story about um, local Torontonian or uh, became a Torontonian or family became Torontonians after uh, they escaped from the the States and ended up um, with a farm in in Don Mills. So um, our issue is um, I'm really excited. I'm always excited about our issues, but but this one is is something that I think is is, uh, quite unique. And we have a couple more spacing projects that uh, I think our, our readers might be interested to hear about. Yeah, so I, I think some some of the some of our readers and listeners, I, I hope remember that we did a we did a book called "The Fifty Objects That Define Toronto." Um, we have a a web and TV series, so it's actually been up um, on for, uh, 
ready for viewers to watch. If you're a subscriber of Bell Fibe, uh, that, that cable service, um, we've uh, we have a five part TV series, uh, um, five half half hour episodes um, that that I host, uh, and I and I walk people through all fifty of our objects, and so that's been available to to people who who have who have Fibe. But now we're uh, we're making it available to all of our readers uh, through our website. So um, starting uh, starting this spring, we're gonna be, we're gonna have uh, those episodes uh, available on spacing.ca. Uh, and then the other thing that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, really excited about is we've been working on this for years. Um, it's kind of been some, a project that's been in our back pocket and kind of waiting for the right time uh, to, to uh, uh, unveil it. Um, it's a Toronto Public Etiquette Guide. Um, our senior editor, Dylan Reed, has been working on this for years and pecking away at it. Um, and uh, we now, uh, we, we got the funds together. We, we put out the 50 Objects book and and, and keeping with that format, we're, we're, we're extending that um, to the Public Etiquette Guide. Um, and so it's a, it's a kind of like a, a tongue-in-cheek look at how to behave in Toronto. So we have, our, our photography is, is um, all these kind of 1950s or 19 60s and before photography of Toronto the Good when we were very much a city that was very proper and puritanical um, um, juxtaposed with how to behave in the city now so um, uh, we, we a lot of it is is derived from reader feedback that that we've uh, solicited over the years uh, lo- lots of ideas on how to you know how to open doors when to when to hold them when not to hold them um, how to behave in bike lanes how to how to walk um, what to do in parks uh, um, a whole bunch of different things uh, and I, it's it's uh, again it's, it's tongue-in-cheek but also at the same time too is actually a, a pretty handy guide uh, because every city has their own colloquialisms they have their own uh, manners and ideas about how to how to do things and and Toronto's no difference and uh, once you, once you're here you, you 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 quickly realize that especially for people who have moved from a different city uh, for for people who lived here all, all your all our lives it's it, it it seems natural but quite quite different for for the people who have who have moved here from Vancouver Edmonton or the or, or for the east coast or from the, or from the states so um, that'll be coming out in the spring uh, too where where I'm I'm basically going to leave here and and uh, send it to the printer so I'm really excited about uh, um, about this book so recently a video went viral uh, where there was an altercation on the TTC uh, over the issue of someone putting their feet on the seat. Uh, do you think this uh, guide will help uh, you know, Torontonians like the people in the video sort of uh, navigate these uh <laughs> these sort of skirmishes. Yeah, well, you, you, you'd like to you'd like to you'd like to think so. Um, I, I love seeing those types of things. It's that you know Toronto is very passive aggressive in its etiquette and, and how it deals with it and and we, we bring that up in our book and that's actually some of our, our advice is you have to be passive aggressive to get things um, uh, uh, forget get people to see things the way that you think they should be should be done um, so um, I, I, I absolutely love seeing that but it's uh, again that's uh, you know this is the balance that you have in a city, right? You you try to you try to figure out um, when you can do things and when you can't do things, and how to do them properly, and how to coexist with all these different people from different parts of the country and different parts of the world, and and be open to like how they also deal with things too. So it's a I <laughs> I think our book uh, is is going to be kind of a, a, a fun exploration of that. All right. Well, I look forward to it, Matt. Thank you. Cheers. Look, I'll admit it. I've spent my fair share of winter days mere feet away from a space heater, ignoring calls, refusing to leave the house. And while I'm a major cycling advocate, 
I brought my bike inside for January and February, to my great shame. Sometimes winter can make the city seem so much bigger, a short walk that much longer. But as State of the City Inc. founder Brian Kelsey, who calls Winnipeg one of his three hometowns, told me, if you plan a city around the worst few months of the year, you get a bad city. Snow is not a case against cycling infrastructure. The world's windiest intersection is not a case against pedestrianization. But beyond that, we can actually plan to make the most of our so-called worst months. To embrace the inevitable winter season. With the right attitude and a little innovation, we might even look forward to the cold. The fact is, I engage with winter in the city far more than I ever did in my northern community. Who says we have to give winter the cold shoulder? Oh God, I'm so sorry for that. Neil, please play me out. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell your hockey team, your Danish pen pal, and your favorite climatologist. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or review on iTunes or SoundCloud will help us reach new listeners. I produce this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. Technical support was provided by Pixel Pie Productions at pixelpi.ca. Hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, and scoops on Twitter at Spacing Radio, all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-O-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto. Until next time, stay cool. Oh God, I cannot keep doing that.